If you have your scriptures with you, open them to 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to continue our look at this passage from the book of Timothy that I think is perhaps an early creed or confession of the church. A lot of scholars believe that, and I think, uh, I think that's probably true. 1 Timothy 3.14, and let's, let's read from the beginning. I hope to come to you soon. But I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. This is the word of the Lord. In uh, Scott Saul's book, and this is a book that I have been recommending lately. It's a great book, Jesus Outside the Lines, and I uh, really commend it to you. I hope many of you will consider reading it. It's, It's a very important book, particularly at this time in our history with the polarization of our culture and politics, and so many other things. It's very helpful. But in his book, uh, Scott talks about uh, the pop singer Madonna in one section of the book. And uh, Madonna, some of you will remember, at the very height of her fame and glory back in the early 90s, she was interviewed by Vanity Fair. And uh, they questioned her about her her fame and her her, uh, career. And she told them that one of the things she struggled with was a feeling, listen to this, a feeling of inadequacy. This was a, uh, a pop singer, a rock star that was at the height of her fame and glory and yet was struggling with inadequacy. And here's what she said. I'm always struggling with that fear, the fear of inadequacy. I push past uh, one spell and discover in myself a special human being. Then I get to another stage and think I'm mediocre and uninteresting. Again and again, my drive in life is from this horrible fear of being mediocre. That's what's pushing me. Even though I've become somebody, I still have to prove that somebody. My struggle has never ended. It probably never will. We've been talking about the glory that was lost to man uh, at the fall. When we, our parents, original parents sinned, and then now, of course, all of us have joined the, the party uh, with our sin. And when we do that, we have lost glory. The glory that God originally invested every human being with is disfigured. It's uh, not completely gone but it's certainly not what it once was. And it no longer is capable of satisfying us. And so we start looking for other glory. God's glory has been diminished in us, and so we start looking for other glory. And this section of 1 Timothy, Timothy, uh, Paul is telling Timothy about living out the gospel and how Jesus Christ, our Savior, is central to that gospel. And so he makes these amazing statements about Jesus being manifest in the flesh, 
vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glory. These statements all are about Jesus Christ. And so we are asking the question, how does this confession or creed apply to, uh, to Christ and then, of course, apply to us? And today we're going to look at this very important subject of being vindicated or justified or uh, giving meaning uh, to uh, our lives. Vindicated by the Spirit. Justification. Uh, so let's look at it this way. We'll, we'll talk about what it is. What is vindication? What is justification? Why, why did Jesus need it? You know, right away you should ask the question, what did Jesus need to be justified for or vindicated for? After all, He was perfect and the Son of God and all of that. And then finally, we're going to look at how do you embrace this uh, for your everyday life? Because I hope that you can see uh, that there is uh, perhaps a most needed application here. Because all of us, every human being, everyone I've ever met, including myself, we are all trying to find glory and meaning. We look for it in our careers. We look for it in our marriages. We look for it in our children. We look for it even in our religion. We can make an idol out of our faith. And try to find and, and, and suck meaning out of things that were never meant to give us those meaning, that, that kind of meaning. Which is what the problem was with Madonna. Her career, her fame was giving her meaning, but whenever there was a little dip, if there was ever a question in her mind if she was adequate, if she was really on top of the world, that idol betrayed her. And that idol in our lives will betray us, whether it's money, career, status, power, approval, education, whatever you may think it is. If you're getting it from something other than Jesus Christ, you will find that it turns and betrays you. So what is vindication? What is Paul talking about? The word vindication is the Greek word, and I don't give you Greek very often, but this is an important Greek word, dikaio. And it's part of a word group that means justify, vindicate, uh, to make righteous, righteousness, all the same word. Now in English, we don't think of it that way. We see righteousness and justification and even vindication as being different. But they're all the same word in Greek and you're to get the meaning of it from the context of the sentence. And so when Paul says Jesus was vindicated or justified or made righteous, my goodness, made righteous, by the Spirit, we need to ask what that is. Vindication. Justification. It's an acquittal. In other words, it's, you were guilty, now you are innocent. Now remember, he's talking about Jesus. Uh, you were declared innocent. You were said to be unrighteous, but now I'm saying you're righteous. So what is it? Calvin, John Calvin, said this, Justification is part of our union uh, with Christ. Therefore, listen, anyone who is justified will also receive all the benefits of salvation. He's saying justification is the door that opens us up to the world of God's blessings. All the benefits that are in Jesus come to us because we have been vindicated or justified. We receive all the benefits of salvation, one of which is imputed righteousness. And I'll talk about that in a moment a little bit more. The good works, listen to this, this is absolute 
magic. If you get this today, if you will plug this into your life, it can transform your life. Now, I know all preachers promise that, uh, and we don't generally deliver, right? But I promise you, if you plug this in right now, it'll change everything, the way you look at everything around you. The good works of Jesus did, the good works that He did in His life, Calvin says, are imputed or reckoned or counted to us while our sins were imputed to Him on the cross. Did you, did you hear it? Our good, his good works are imputed to us. Our sins are imputed to Him. J.I. Packer said this, justification is God's forgiveness of past uh, forgiveness of past sins together with His acceptance for the future. So in justification or vindication or being made righteous, God is saying, I forgive your past and I make promises to you for the future. He's covering the whole expanse of a human being's life. Okay, Tim Keller says that justification, vindication, being made righteous is a validating performance record that opens doors. In other words, it's saying, uh, here is, my, here is my, my record. I'm worthy. Now accept me. It's like when you go for a job, you, you take your resume. Or when you're applying to college, you give them your, your set of grades. Or when we go before God, very often, uh, even us Protestants, as much as we want to say we don't believe by uh, justification by works, we all do. And I can prove it to you if you ever sit down with me for five minutes. I've done it to all my journey, guys, haven't I, fellas? I can make them crazy because we actually do believe in justification by works. We, we say we don't, but... Our lives are lived out that way. We want to find validation before God. We want Him to accept us because we've been good or we've done such and so or we've served the church in this way or that way or look at my family or look at the way I'm working or look at the way I'm doing my holy, my holy life. Look at it. Please, God, will you look at it? We want that desperately. A validating performance record. So there's two sides to, to vindication. There's two parts of it. One is forgiveness. And a Methodist preacher said it this way. You may, in forgiveness, God is saying to you, you may go. You may go. You're free. I find no guilt in you. The penalty, in other words, for sin has been removed. The penalty. But in the other side of justification is acceptance. You have forgiveness and acceptance. Acceptance is the hard one, the one we struggle with as human beings. Acceptance says you may come. It's power over sin, which I think is what we all would love to have. We'd love to experience true power over sin. Most of us are victims to sin. It comes along and we just, you know, I can't help myself. I just can't help it. But there is power over sin. And I think that some of that power, uh, if not all of it, is found in these two parts. One, the part of forgiveness. Secondly, the part of acceptance. Acceptance. We lost that and we need it. And if anything else takes a hold of your life and gives you acceptance and validation and vindication and justification for your life, anything whatsoever, doesn't matter what it is. It could be something good, actually. But if anything does, 
that thing will eventually, listen carefully, it will enslave you. It will make you its slave. And the way you know is if it's ever taken away from you or if it's ever degraded in any way, you will fall apart. Your life will fall apart. Um, you know, for years, I owned a, uh, before I became uh, a world-famous pastor um, and, uh, and scholar of theology, uh, I, I had another career. I had 20, 20 years. I owned my own business here in El Paso. And, uh, and it was pretty, pretty good. It started off rough and I was successful later on. Uh, but I worked very hard. I put in 80, 90 hours a week, uh, seven days a week. You can ask my wife. I sacrificed my family, my wife, my children on the altar of that business. And I thought if I would do that, and bring a, a big fat paycheck home and give it to them and build them a nice house and make sure my kids had you know, the best motorcycles and all of the great things, that somehow that was going to validate my existence. Somehow that would give me meaning. And of course, uh, when God called me to go to seminary, we had to uh, sell all our stuff uh, and found out it wasn't worth as much as we had thought and uh, go to seminary in Orlando, Florida where nobody knew my name and nobody cared. And all of a sudden, all of my so-called validation, my self-esteem, everything went away. And I was just another number, another student, uh, another guy there spending his life trying to get a degree. And I had, I had no validation and I went through a real crisis of identity there. Uh, and that was one of many. That, I could tell you more stories, but I don't want to take up your time with that. I think all of us have experienced that. Where we were getting some validation from something, and it betrayed us, or it went away, or it was diminished in some way, and all of a sudden we are left with this aching hole in our, in our soul. I'm not who I thought I was. So why, ask yourself this, the second question, why did Jesus need this? Remember, this is about Him. Jesus was validated, justified, vindicated, made righteous, if you will, in the Spirit. Why? And so here, here's some things to think about. Did He do it for Himself? Let's ask some questions. Did Jesus do this for Himself? Was He vindicated and justified in the Spirit for Himself? The answer is, what? Yes and no. Who said no? Okay, eh, that's wrong. It's yes and no. Yes and no. Listen, no, he didn't do it for himself because he had done anything wrong. He committed no sin, neither was there any deceit found in him, in his mouth. First Peter chapter 2. We don't have a high priest, this is from Hebrews, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but in every respect was tempted like we are, yet without sin. So he didn't sin. And in 1 John he says, you know that he appeared in order to take away our sins, but in him there was no sin. So was he justified or vindicated uh, because he had sin in his life? Absolutely not. So the answer to that is no. But did he do it for us in another sense? Did he do it for himself in another sense, the answer is yes. And here it is. Listen carefully. For the joy that was set before Him, this is Hebrews chapter 12, 
For the joy that was set before Him, He endured the cross. The shame of the cross. In the book of Isaiah, it says that God put Him to grief. Willingly. And out of the anguish of His soul, He shall see and be satisfied. You see, Jesus needed vindication for Himself for you and for me. He needed vindication. He needed to be, to be declared righteous from the, the curse of the cross, being hung on the cross for you and I, for our sins. He needed somebody in the cosmos to stand up and say, well done, good and faithful servant. For you, I will give you the kingdom. I will give it to you now. And I'll give you all that belong to you. I'll vindicate you. I'll justify you. In the eyes of man, He had done no wrong and God declared Him righteous. Not for Himself, but for you and for me. He needed that for us. And He did that for us. What about for God? Did Jesus need to be vindicated for God? The answer is yes. He needed to satisfy both the love of God and the wrath of God. The love of God and the wrath of God. J.I. Packer, I think it's in Knowing God, in his book Knowing God, said that love, mercy and love and God's wrath kiss at the cross. They come together and they embrace they intertwine at the cross. God's justice, God's love, and God's mercy, and God's wrath all come into a confluence at the cross. And everything that was irresolvable in the human condition is resolved right there on the cross. God's wrath is satisfied. God's wrath is propitiated. That's the technical word for it. Propitiated. God is satisfied with the sacrifice that Jesus made. He's also satisfied with the work that Jesus did in His life. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 5, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. And we seem to think that Jesus had this bucket of empty prophecies and He was just trying to fulfill all of them. That's not what He was doing. He came to actually live a righteous life. He came to live the life that you and I should live and haven't. And die the death that you and I should have died, but were spared. Now that may be old hat to you and you say, oh, I know all that, I know all that. Then the question is, if we know all that, why do we live lives that are so below the grade and we don't have any joy? This will bring you an irrepressible joy knowing that Jesus not only died for you, but that He lived for you and that He lives today for you. So did He do it for God? Yes. What about for us? Yes, for us, and as I tell you almost every week, folks, you should write it in the front of your Bible. He died for us. He died as us. He lives in us. And He will live through us. Right? He died for us, as us. He will live in us and through us. The four dimensions of God's great love for His people. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from from the law, 
Paul said in Romans chapter 3, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Do you believe in Him? If you do, then the righteousness of Christ, all His good doings, as well as His death, are applied to you and I. He who knew no sin was made to be sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is called the great exchange. This is what we call double imputation. All of Christ's uh, righteousness is imputed to us. Now, listen, there are today scholars, unfortunately, they're saying that's, that's a figment of your imagination. You Protestants, that's a figment of your imagination. There's no such thing as imputed righteousness. But folks, let me ask you something. If you do not have Christ's righteousness imputed to you, then what does that leave you with? At the end of the day, what are you left with? Go ahead, class. Anybody? What? You're exactly right. You're looking for self-righteousness. Salvation by by your effort and by your works. That's all you're left with at the end of the day. And it can't be some combination of the two. Because if it's some combination of the two, you're bringing His works and His righteousness down and saying somehow mine are, 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 are commensurate with Him. Uh, con- remember from theology class the other night? Con- condine? Congruous? You remember all those terms we studied the other night? Do you see the problem with that, folks? We must depend on Him and Him alone. R.C. Sproul, i never forget, 1994 at the Ligonier Conference, it was the first one Marty V. and I went to, and R.C. was talking about, uh, about this very thing. And he, he got up and he told the crowd there, thousands, several thousand people, he said, make no mistake, you're saved by works. You're saved the old-fashioned way by works. But they're not your works. They're the works of Christ. And I, I thought my head was going to explode. My goodness, I thought I was saved by my helping and participating and cooperating with you. Isn't that how I'm saved? No, you're saved by grace through faith alone plus nothing. And then, then comes the work of cooperating with our Lord Jesus Christ. But we're saved the old-fashioned way. And if you can plug that into your lives, folks, and every day when sin is crouching at the door and beating you down, you can raise your fist and say, no, I've been forgiven, and raise the other fist and say, no, I have a Savior who lived a perfect life for me. If you can do that, then sin will start to shrink into the background of your life. Not that it will go away, but it will not have power The penalty has been forgiven and the power that we have to overcome sin is not in our hard work and effort. The power over sin is in Jesus' hard work and effort and us applying to that every day of our life as we resist. If you don't do that, it's just your willpower. And I don't know about you, but I could put a plate of chocolate chip cookies out here and destroy your willpower. Right? I mean, come on. Who wants to rely on willpower? Some people have good and some don't. I don't want to rely on that. I want to rely on Jesus Christ. And then my willpower may go up and down and sideways and everything, but I've got a central focus to my life. He lived for me. He died for me too. It's not one or the other. It's both. 
And you can't have one without the other. So how do you embrace it? Well, we sing this hymn, Though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well, and thousands more. My God, He knoweth none. Though the vile accuser roar of sins that I have done, I know them well, and thousands more. My God, He knoweth none. What do you see in that little picture in that hymn? What you see is a person who knows who they are. I know who I am, folks. I know what's, I know what's inside of me. You don't. And you know what's inside of you, and I don't. Jesus knows what's inside of both of us, and He still loves us and accepts us. Listen, not in spite of that stain, but because of it. He has rich, loving, tender mercy. He knows that we are dust. He knows what our struggles are. He was tempted like we are, yet without sin. He lives for us, not just dies for us, as important as that is. And we, as, as Christians, are all too quick to accept the forgiveness of God, but then we try to take the next steps of our Christian life on our own. Do you see it? We want to accept God's forgiveness Fine and dandy, He forgives me. Thank you for forgiving me. Now I can handle it from here, Jesus. I got this. And off we go into abject failure. And all I'm telling you is, this is very practical, folks, that if you can combine in your life true humility, I know my sins and thousands more. Humility. Yet my God, He knoweth none. That's incredible boldness. If you can put humility and boldness together, then you see Jesus Christ standing at the bar in heaven, uh, the, the, in the court of heaven, and saying this to God. He's our, our advocate, our lawyer, and He's standing, and there I am, standing next to Him. And He says, Father, forgive Chuck. Will you forgive him? And Father says, you know, your death on the cross is sufficient. I will forgive Chuck for his sins. Uh, great, Father, I, I, I'm so happy that you're going to forgive. Now, Father, will you accept uh, Chuck? Will you accept him as one of your own? He says, you know, by virtue of your death and life and everything you've done for, for Chuck, I, I, I will accept him, Jesus. I, I love him as, because you love him, and you love him because I love him, and it's all connected. So I accept him and I forgive him. And then Jesus says this, Father, I want you to give Chuck everything he deserves. How do you like that? Give him what he deserves. And the Father says, gladly, I will give him everything you deserve because he belongs to you. Do you see that? The boldness and the humility combined in the life of a human being. And when you're facing the troubles and trials in your own life, you bring that up and you hold it before God. I am a vile sinner. I know my sins and thousands more, but you have forgiven me and you have lived and died for me. Therefore, I stand before you. Save me. Help me. Fight for me. 
Let me conclude with this. This is from Horatius Bonar's book, uh, The Everlasting Righteousness, another book that I hope many of you will read. Bonar said it this way, and this is why these guys are so great, these old fellows that write these books. And here's what he said. To be entitled to use another's name when my own name is worthless. To be allowed to wear another's raiment because my own is torn and filthy. To appear before God in another's person, the person of the beloved Son. This is the summit of all blessing. The sin-bearer and I have exchanged names and robes and persons. I am now represented by Him. He now appears in the presence of God for me. All that makes Him precious and dear to the Father has been transferred to me. His excellency and glory are seen as if they were mine. And I receive the love, the fellowship, and the glory as if I had earned them. So entirely one am I with the sin bearer that God treats me not merely as if I had done the evil that I have done, but as if I had done all the good which I have not done, but which my substitute has done. In one sense, I am still the poor sinner, once under wrath. In another, I am altogether righteous and shall be so forever because of the perfect one in whose perfection I appear. Will you trust Him with your life? Will you do it like Bonar did? If you will, you can have success defeating sin and living a righteous life for Him that you never dreamed possible. I pray you'll do it. Father, thank You for this great grace that You've given us. Both complete forgiveness and a radical acceptance. Not just forgiven as if we had never sinned, but received and accepted as if we had done all the law perfectly. That's shocking and amazing and so hard for us to embrace. But I pray, Holy Father, that You will help us to find our validation, our vindication, our justification in the One who died for us and lives and lived and ever lives for us. Please do it, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.